I threatened to sue the church. I think I have never actually mentioned this before. On today's episode of Let's Get Real, we'd like to introduce Don Bradley. Don Bradley, Don Bradley. Bradley. author of the 416 pages, Reconstructing the Missing Contents of the Book of Mormon. Hello, everyone. He's an independent historian researcher, received the MHA Best Article Award for his work on the Kinderhook Plates. Back when I was an ex-Mormon atheist, I got hired by Brian Hales to research Joseph Smith and polygamy. I promise that the presentation itself will be similarly dramatic. Pioneer Day 2005 was the day that I hand-delivered my letter of resignation from the church. I met with the stake president. One of the last things he said to me was he had a feeling that I would be back. People say losing my faith. What does that mean for you? We have an exemplar. If our faith is centered on something other than God, then our faith is misplaced. And when we experience that doubt, the positive function is to tell us people think if someone knows the details of the history of the church, that's like a one-way ticket out of the church. I could make a pretty good argument that I know the sources on justice Smith and polygamy as well as anybody and I did come back so how that happened there's a little known account of the first vision Joseph Smith he says that at the beginning of the vision this oh is oh my gosh just my mind is just so blown right now. This is exploding in my head. So when I went to come back to the church, I went and met with the bishop, and I was like, they are never letting me back in the church. I called the bishop in tears and he said, if anyone wonders, right, if the church really forgives. This was obviously the culmination of a journey up to that point, right? But um, I had come to the determination that um, the church wasn't true, uh, that Joseph Smith wasn't a prophet, that he was in fact an opportunist. Um, and I had decided that I probably would be excommunicated someday for things that I was going to write. And um, so I, and I was at this point, I was an atheist. So I thought I would just kind of take things into my own hands and uh, excommunicate myself, if you mm, will, mm. Um, have my name removed from the records of the church. So um, I didn't, uh, I wanted to bar that door shut. And mm. we can get to the reasons why, right? I, I laughed and what built up to that. But at that moment, um, I, I actually thought that at some future point, I might want to come back to the church. Mm. Um, and I th didn't want to do that. And so um, I, in my exit letter, I bore my anti-testimony. I raised um, s at least half a dozen issues, maybe eight or ten issues that I thought that I would never be able to answer later. Um, so, do you mind sharing any of those? Oh, sure. Like just Justice Smith's polyandry, um, the Book of Abraham, uh, tax not matching what was on the papyri. Um, I'd have to think. To yeah, it's okay. I'm just going to get were. an but, idea for you. Yeah, yeah th those were a couple. Um, but at the time, you didn't think that you'd be able to answer. I thought I would never be able to answer yeah, these. Yeah. And so I thought, if I put these in my letter, then if I ever try to come back to the church, they won't let me back because I would have to explain these things mm. right, that I'd put in my letter. And I thought, I'll never be able to explain these things. And so they'll never let me back. And I don't think I've ever mentioned this. As, as you know, I've done several podcasts where I've talked about yeah. my spiritual journey. I think I've probably never actually mentioned this before. But um, one of the things that I did to bar myself from coming back is I threatened to sue the church. Um, so I, my employer, I was living in Utah. I was living here in Springville. And hmm. um, uh, my 
landlords were LDS, my employers were LDS, and I thought if I leave the church and they find out, maybe they'll kick evict me. It wouldn't be legal for them to do that, but maybe they would evict me or maybe they would fire me or whatever. And so I thought, well, one way to avoid that is to, in my letter to let them know this needs to be kept absolutely confidential. If it's not, then I could sue the church. And I thought, well, and that would also help me to never come back because if I threaten <laughs> to sue the church, they're never going to let me back. Hmm. And so um, hmm. at that time, I I had called um, the ward executive secretary to set up an appointment because I I knew from reading online. So so if if people want to yeah, leave the church, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so so this was. This was, I like to say I had a faith crisis before it was cool, but because um, <laughs> this 2005 was before the big sort yeah, of yeah. rash, if you will, of, of like faith crises. Um, but um, I um, had read, but there was still a lot of information online about what to do if you want to leave the church. So on exmormon.org, there was all this information about here's a sample letter that you can adapt for mm -hmm. yourself. Here's Here's the direct number for Greg Dodge, who handles you know, membership resignations at church headquarters. Here's here are sort of legal considerations, yeah. you yeah. know, for your letter and and so on. And so I read all that really carefully, and um, uh, they said once you send your letter in, the church headquarters will want to send your letter to your local leader, and they will want you to meet with your local leader. And I and they said, don't don't meet with them. They're just going to try to talk you out of it. And I, my thought at the time was, though, if the church sees this as being part of the process, they they would like me to talk to my leader. I'll talk to my leader. I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna shy away from that because I thought it was uncomfortable, mm. right? Okay. And so um, I called and I scheduled an appointment, and they had I think they bishop the bishop had appointments on like July twenty third or twenty fourth, and I was like. 24th that's pioneer day yeah. i could i can set up my own ex-mormon pioneering right like on, like on the pioneer pioneer day and so yeah. i i um i was on the phone with my best friend outside the church building right and then i you know we he was giving me encouragement i hung up and i went in and you know hand delivered my letter and that was what started the process of leaving so you in your mind you're like there's no way that i'm coming back and I'm going to make sure that I outline these specific pieces. And at that point, you're like, in your mind, you're like, there's nothing that could ever convince me to come back. And you wanted to make that clear. I wanted to make it clear. I, I also thought that, I kind of thought that in a way I would be tempted to come back. Mm. Because I thought that, I didn't think I would ever be able to believe again. Mm. But the church was, I had, some people describe having like a terrible experience growing up in the church as a child. I, I don't know what they're talking about, but yeah. like, I mean, everybody obviously has a different life experience, but like m mine wasn't that way. It was wonderful. And so I thought, well, maybe at some point I would want to come back to the church just because, you know, it's like a beautiful community. And I thought, well, I, I, I need to make sure I don't do that. And so I thought if I actually lay out in my letter the reasons why I don't believe, then I'll never be able to go back because they'll ask me if I try to come back, well, what about these things that you said you didn't believe? Mm. And I'll be like, well, I thought I'll never be able to answer those. So I'm, that will keep me from ever thinking that I can come back. 
Wow. So. And so July 24th, 2005, mm -hmm. you mm -hmm. send in the letter mm -hmm. and you walk away. Tell me about that moment when you walked away. Did it feel, was it um, refreshing? Was it sad? Was it happy? What At was that time, like? At the time, it was exhilarating yeah. because I really thought that I was, it was, even though it was hard in a way, I, I had to sort of build myself up to it. I thought that I was really like liberating myself. I thought that I had bought into a religious system that however powerful it was and whatever good aspects it had to it, I thought it wasn't true. Hmm. And so I thought that I was freeing myself to go on and have whatever sort of authentic life I might have, you know, with my non-belief. And so the, the bishop um, actually... Uh, he had me talk. The bishop had a really hard time with it, yeah. honestly. Um, and so I, I actually tried to kind of, this might seem ironic, but I tried to kind of comfort him. Really? <laughs> yeah. Because, like, I'm okay. Because I I totally understood why he would think yeah. from a Latter-day Saint perspective that what I was doing was like harming myself eternally. Yeah. Right? And um, he said, well, the stake president will want to meet with you. And so I said, sure. So weeks later, I met with the stake president. And I, I've talked about this before, but the, one of the last things he said to me was, uh, before I left, uh, was um, um, that he had a feeling that I would be back. And I was thinking in my mind, I know I'm never coming back to the church, right? Mm -hmm. um, but I thought, but it's not like, literally logically impossible it doesn't like it's not like a married bachelor it's not impossible right yeah, so, yeah 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 so so i thought just just to make him feel better i'll say it's possible <laughs> meaning that meaning it's never actually going to happen but it's logically possible yeah right? yeah yeah and so that's what i said um and so um then uh little did i know right but like um then um it was a couple months later when I got my letter telling me officially, you know, you're, per your request, in accordance with your request, your, you know, um, name has been removed from the membership of the church and so on. And I had expected that to feel liberating. Yeah. And actually, I felt really sad. You felt sad. I felt like cut off, right? Because hmm. like I said, the church was a beautiful community. I, I felt like this was the only real community hmm. I had ever known. I had very fond childhood memories of my ward in South Bend, Indiana, where just I was really connected with caring adults. And, um, you know, and I, I remember when I was eight, when I got baptized, how I'd wanted to follow Jesus and so on. And even though now I was an atheist, I still thought like, well, hmm. I wanted to do something good by yeah. joining the church. And I I felt like, why why did I undo that yeah. again? Like what? But then I thought, well, the, de the deed is done now. I can't, there's no going back. Because hmm. while I had, I had actually not believed for about five years before I left officially. Okay. okay? And, um, I um, I had seen that it was like a good community. And so um, then, you know, when suddenly I was actually out of the church, um, before it had been like, well, since I was in the church, even though I had lost my faith, I could still stay in the church. Yeah, right? yeah. But if you have, if you're not a member of the church, 
and you want to join the church, they kind of want you to believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I knew that I, I thought that I'm never going to be able to believe again. And so I'll never be able to go back. And so I just accepted the fact that, okay, well, I've done this. I've done what I had decided. I've left the church. And that kind of, you know, initiated a sort of a journey from there. So let's go back to what led to that point. Like, sure. so, so you're in the church for five years, even before, like, where did it start? Because I'm assuming that it didn't happen. It doesn't seem in one day. Anything but, right? So, so I do sometimes talk to people who, like, they, they found out Joseph Smith practiced polygamy and they, they were gone. Like, they immediately lost their faith or something. I, I really wrestled, struggled over a long period of time. So my, my first doubts came when I was a teenager. Okay. So uh, my parents were East Coast converts to the church, very devout, strict Latter-day Saint family. I was like a good LDS kid. I, I, I wasn't like hyper devout as a child, but not many children are. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. I read the scripture psalm. Um, I really what the things that I did learn about church things really stuck in my mind, you know. But when I was about fifteen, I was taking seminary, and I had a wonderful seminary teacher, and he really taught us about setting goals, yeah. including spiritual goals. And this is the first time in my life I started to really set goals in different areas of my life. And that resulted in me growing a lot spiritually. I was trying to learn more about how to keep my baptismal covenant better and other things like that. And um, that ended up leading into me like learning things about the history of the church. I had initially just been trained to learn like God. scripture and doctrine, yeah, right? Yeah. And sort of uh, applied application of the gospel to my life. And then um, uh, when I was 17, and I, I've talked about this, it's, it's like the, it's a weird incident, right? Yeah. Um, and maybe it's, maybe in retrospect, maybe it's partly the hand of providence in my life, right? But I, um, my first doubts came because of family home evening. Um, so <laughs> what do you mean? I know that's just the way it came out. <laughs> you know, like. it wasn't. It wasn't anything about the lesson or anything. Um, mm. My my parents were great about having family home evening, but like we had the lesson and all that, and then we we would always have a family activity. And this night, our activity was that we went to Deseret Book. My dad took us to Deseret Book in Orem, and uh, he offered to get us each a church book on any subject that we wanted. Okay. And so there, I was looking in the general authority section. So not the most likely place to find something that starts your your doubts, right? But, <laughs> but there in between the books by, you know, Boyd K. Packer and Joseph Filling Smith, they had books by B.H. Roberts. Yeah. And I knew who B.H. Roberts was. He had died way back in the 30s, yeah, yeah. right? But like... I knew that he had been one of the general authorities from the Seven Presidents of the Seventy, one of the church's great intellectuals of yeah. the past. And I knew he'd edited the, the history of the church, and I had another book on him, by him on doctrine. And this book, though, was titled Studies of the Book of Mormon. Um, back in the early 1900s, um, B.H. Roberts had encountered some questions from a well-meaning non-Mormon, like like someone investigating the church, who had he he saw what he thought were some real flaws in the Book of Mormon. Um, he noted that the Book of Mormon, for instance, um, talked about the Native Americans all originating from one group of people, like 
2,600 years ago, or at least this was how yeah. the text was understood at the time, yeah. right? It was hemispheric geography. The yeah. Lehigh is the ancestor of all Native Americans everywhere, yeah. you know, like, like their main progenitor. And um, he noted that the if you look at all the languages, the linguistic diversity of Native Americans today, yeah. that that degree of linguistic diversity couldn't have developed in just 2,600 years, 2,500 years. Okay. And so, um, like, um, but Roberts decided he wanted to study these kinds of arguments more. Basically, in modern terms, you could say he was sort of trying to steel man the critics' arguments. He, okay. was, he was kind of making a devil's advocate case against mm. the Book of Mormon, arguing the Book of Mormon could be a 19th century work. Joseph Smith could have written it. To prove that it was. Right. Well, in order to – so that Latter-day Saints would know what they're up against I kind see. of. I like, see. like you can't answer the questions and the criticisms if you haven't figured out what the best questions and criticisms are. Yeah. And so he was trying to – figure out what what are the arguments that people haven't yet brought against the Book of Mormon, but they will in the future. Yeah. And he wanted to lay them out first so that Latter-day Saint scholars could start working on them. Well, obviously, he had never intended for this to be published as a book. This was privately circulated among yeah. journal authorities yeah. and such. So um, several decades later, after his death, mm. this was published by the University of Illinois Press. Mm. And... The title seems the, pretty simple. <laughs> right. And the, the buyers at Deseret Book clearly did not know what they were getting. Okay. Right? Because otherwise they would never have stocked this book because it's not a faith-promoting book. It's like the opposite. Yeah. Right? And so I'm probably the only teenager in the entire church who picked this up uh, a desert book, and especially during family home evening. Right? <laughs> so, so I, it's just, I looked... don't be the laugh. I just think it's interesting. You <laughs> well, know? No, really <laughs> you know? though. It's, it's kind of hilarious, right? So like, um, cause it's such an unlikely thing to have happen. Yeah. Yeah. It's so unlikely, hmm. but it happened. Right. Yeah. And so, um, the book looked interesting in parts of it. He was like analyzing Joseph Smith's dreams and talking about mm. all kinds of just fascinating things. And I was like, Oh, this looks cool. So I had encountered anti-Mormon literature at the local library, but when I read that stuff, at Desiree a little book, bit, you're saying no, 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 at that's the, so separate. At, okay, no, 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 yeah, at, at the local library yeah, okay, previously, okay, okay, okay. yeah, okay. Um, but when I read that stuff, like Gerald and Sandra Tanner's Mormonism: Shadow or Reality, yeah. When I read that stuff, I had my guard up. Right? That's I knew right. these that's right. were anti-Mormons, yeah. right? But this was B. H. Roberts. This was a general authority. Mm. So this came in under the radar. I wa I didn't have my guard up. Right. And so I just read his arguments and I was like, whoa, you know, hmm. like I, 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 I like to say it's true that like um, up until this time, like Nephi had been as real to me as George Washington. I had no more, you know, question the reality of one yeah. than the other. Yeah. Right. Uh, and so I it really shook me. Hmm. Uh, even though I'd been very devout, there were all these questions now that I didn't know, I didn't have any idea how to answer. And so then it, it raised questions about not only the Book of Mormon, but Validity. the church in general, hmm. Jesus, God, life after death. And so it just kind of blew up hmm. these questions for me. Hmm. And then for several months, I was wrestling with all of this. And um, I actually started going up to... We moved, actually, we moved at the end of that school year. Tell, tell me, tell me, when you say wrestle, tell me about that a little bit more. When you, because what did that look like for you? 
because you read the book and it, that it kind of brings up some questions. Sure. And how were you wrestling with it? Were you praying? What, what, did, what was that like? Oh, mm. I was, well, I, I was trying to consider lots of things. So I had had powerful spiritual experiences. And so I was, mm. I was wondering, what do I make of those? Mm. And one of the things I wondered is, were those from God or were those just from my own mind? You know, I mean, I had these experiences. I knew I'd had the experiences. wasn't questioning that. But I was questioning, what did they mean? You know, mm. can, can I rely on these experiences? Or I had been a science kid. So, so this yeah, was when I was yeah. first getting into history. I had not been a history kid. That was my older brother. Like, okay, okay. Uh, but I was, very method. I was a yeah. science kid, right? Very yeah. systematic, yeah. logical. So I, I took a, one of my classes in high school. Uh, I took an honors class, and they had us take something called the Wexler Test of Rational Thinking. And, you're like, and I scored the. This was these were the smart kids in the school. I scored the highest in the class, right? Mm. I just was like, this was how I thought. I thought systematically, rationally, and science really had helped train me to think that way. So okay. Science. Okay. And so now, as I was reading these arguments by B. H. Roberts, I could see that there was a logic to these arguments, right? Mm. There was a power to them, and. You know, like the limited geography theory had not really taken hold very mm -hmm. far yet. It was, mm -hmm. it had been published on by this time by John Sorensen, but it hadn't spread much. And that kind of argument helps to answer a lot of Bea Travers's criticisms, but I wasn't familiar with yeah. that. And so, um, as far as I was concerned, it really looked logically like this really undermined the Book of Mormon. And so I was wrestling with, well, what do I make of the things that seem – there did seem to be evidence in favor of the Book of Mormon too. Yeah. And there was the evidence of my own experience with yeah. the Book of Mormon and yeah. the gospel. But then there were these, these ar rational arguments that he laid out and sort of uh, – I had questions mm. about how to weigh that all out. So, mm. so it was almost as if a lot of the wrestle was basically – I can see how logically this could be possible, but then how did I, how do I reconcile the fact that I had these spiritual experiences and that didn't make, and that wasn't, that didn't make sense. Is that what you're saying? So, right. The evidence didn't seem to all be on the same side. So, okay. so I, I think okay. I was, I might've already been familiar with the fact that there were things like chiasmus in the Book of Mormon. I, yeah. I yeah. knew of things that favored the Book of Mormon. And I, I had a book somewhere in this time I read a book, I, I read Richard Laurie Anderson's book, Investigating the Book of Mormon Witnesses. Yeah, yeah. I knew that like the eight witnesses had never no. denied their testimony, or and the three, both, right? Yeah. Um, and so on. So I saw reasons to believe, but now I also was seeing reasons to not believe. And so I was kind of caught on the horns of the dilemma. Mm -hmm. I was sort of, it was like being stretched <laughs> yeah, yeah, between yeah, yeah. two points, yeah. you know? So at the end of that school year, we moved up to Salt Lake and... I was like a, I was a shy high school kid, right? And suddenly I was in a new city far away from the friends that I knew. Mm. And I had a lot of time on my hands that summer. And I started going down to the church archives. I'd also really? become interested. <laughs> As I, a high school kid? Mm -hmm, I was 17. You were mm -hmm. 17? Mm -hmm. And you're in the... And the archives. Of, I was wearing so like cool. knee length shorts, like <laughs> tropical shorts and a t-shirt. 
and going down like about four days out of five every week to the church archives, spending several hours. I was I researched like the origins and demise of the Adam God theory. That was are like you one of my serious? Big, that was my first big archival research project at the church archives when I was 17, 18 years old. Wow. And I was reading stuff about the Book of Mormon. So B.H. Roberts had proposed the idea that others have criticizing the Book of Mormon's antiquity claims have used yeah. that Joseph Smith had encountered the book called A View of the Hebrews. That's right. I know. Um, and so I, I actually read A View of the Hebrews. I like went to the church archives and found it and read See it. See if it's and, similar. Right. And, and I was reading the, the Spalding manuscript. That's right. And I was reading arguments for and against Book of Mormon historicity. And that's, I spent a lot of time that summer doing that. And then when school started up, I went to East High in Salt Lake and I would catch the bus and I would ride down. I, I didn't have a last period class. It was my senior year. Uh, I didn't have a last period class. And so I would leave school early, take the bus from East High downtown, go to the church archives, spend a couple, you know, two or three hours there before they closed and do research. And so I did this all through the summer and all through 12th grade. That's amazing. So you read a lot of this just on your free time, just because you were interested. Were you looking for something, or were you interested? Oh, but man, that's I, the same thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like, oh, were yeah. you trying to? Was it part of the wrestle, or was it just more of the interest? It was both. So it started out being the wrestle, mm. right? Because mm. I, I wanted more information to kind of weigh all this out because I was teetering on the edge. I, during the summer, I basically became agnostic. I was like. I was just maybe just mm. very slightly, just like a hair on the mm. side of belief. Mm. But like uh, I was basically right in the middle, just like slanted ever so slightly toward belief. And so, well, sometimes slanted away, yeah. right? but usually slanted slightly toward. And so that was really painful for me psychologically, mm. emotionally, you know, just like as I felt like I was being like torn between two things. And this, this was stuff that mattered to me, right? Like I... I, I had always had a drive to understand, like, the ultimate meaning of life. Yeah. And um, the restoration had provided that for me because I thought, I remember thinking about different notions of the afterlife and what life is all about and thinking about what I understood about traditional Christian beliefs on that, like Buddhism or whatever. And I remember thinking, well, like... Hmm. Latter-day Saints are saying that, like, when we die, like, like the ultimate per point of our life, our ultimate destiny, is to participate in God's life. That's right. And I thought God is ultimate, and and so like, if what what else could our ultimate purpose be than to participate in God, join God in God's life? And and I, and so that just made so much sense to me. Yeah. And so now to have it all thrown up into question. Was so. that really the point of our life? Was there a point of our life at mm. all? So or now was, I got to find out. Or, 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 and so I wanted mm. just more information. And so I, there, there was both kind of, <laughs> there was both a kind of desperation mm. to find out things and growing just like a curiosity. Because now that same curiosity that I'd been putting towards science as a kid when I was studying like bugs as a little <laughs> kid, like watching how ants behave. And then, like, later in my teenagers, uh, well, when I, I studied later, like, fossils and evolution, right, and, like, um, uh, 
cosmology, yeah. the origins of the universe. Now I was turning, now I started, that curiosity started to be turned to church history because I started to realize, wait, there are open questions about mm. the history of the church. And it's like this fascinating, some fascinating puzzles. And I started to realize by reading good scholars, I started finding that sometimes I disagreed with them, mm. but I disagreed with them because I was seeing things in the evidence, the sources that they presented that they weren't seeing. Interesting. And so I, that Whoa, gave me so like you, some- This is obviously a gift that you have. So th this, this, this gave this, me, yeah. thank you, this, this gave me some confidence. Yeah. Like, wait a minute. You're seeing if the If I'm holes. seeing something that this guy yeah. didn't see, Hmm. then I should pursue this further. You know, I can hmm. do something here. And it, at 17? And yeah, 17, 18, yeah. Wow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're at BYU, and this is after the mission. Yeah. Served the mission. You kind of came to terms with some of the questions that you had to a degree, right? And then where do you go from there? Uh, so um, I... When people read in the history of the church, when they read a book, let's say by Richard Bushman, yeah. okay, um, the person who has written that work has kind of already gone through the process of sort of digesting this yeah. information, kind of integrating, making sense of it intellectually and making sense of it spiritually. But when you are the one doing your own research, that burden falls squarely on you. You have to be the one to make sense of it intellectually and to make whatever sense you're going to make of it spiritually. And so I was finding new things for several years, um, but I was coming up against some limits of making sense of them for myself. I was finding that um, in many ways, the story that I was finding and the story that I had been told were different. There was a gap between the two stories. So it was cognitive yeah. dissonance, yeah, right? Yeah. And so um, that led to some faith questions, further faith questions. So the faith questions that I'd had when I was like 17, 18 started to emerge again mm. and kind of more insistently now because I, I was making new discoveries and I didn't know always what to what to make of them. And so um, I did not realize for much of this time that um, I was gradually losing my faith. Hmm. Uh, what I was ending up believing was less and less like what I had started believing. There was, I, I was believing less and if if this is kind of the total amount that I was believing originally in terms of history and doctrine, with time, that was shrinking. Hmm. And I, I didn't realize that till kind of late in the process. Wait a minute, am I in the process of losing my faith? Hmm. Because I was just trying to explain the data that I was seeing. I was just coming up with new mental models to explain it. Hmm. But I was in the process, I discovered that I was believing less and less. Well, I have an interesting thought on this. And I've, and I've always wanted to ask somebody this because I hear people say losing my faith and in the doctrine of Christ, you know, it's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Totally. Right? And so what is your perspective of that? When somebody says that I lost my faith in that context, and, you know, semantics, you could say there's a lot of different ways you could can see it, right? But, like, how do you see that perspective of losing my faith 
and Jesus Christ, like, what's what would you do? You think they're the same? Was the difference? What did, when people say that for you? What does that mean for you? When you say I lost my faith, right? So at the time, I mean that I was losing my faith, like in the restoration, losing mm. my belief in the restoration. But what you're hitting on, Stephen, is like a really, I think, a really important point. Okay, and I, um, I was thinking of saying this after talking about my journey, but I can slide okay. it in here, right? Like. If you look at all the things that Joseph Smith was called to in his revelations, or he's called to be a prophet, a seer, a revelator, a translator, he's the president of the high priesthood, he's various things. N never once is he called to be an exemplar. Yeah. We have an exemplar mm. in the gospel. Mm. His name's Jesus, right? Not mm. Joseph, right? And so even mm. though, as I see it now, Right. Justice Smith had some really powerful character traits. He had some great strengths, which we might well emulate. Right. Yeah, yeah. But if we're looking to anybody to be our exemplar, even if they're prophets, right? If we're looking at Justice Smith, I mean, Brigham Young, uh, Thomas S. Monson, Russell M. Nelson, whoever, as our exemplar, they're going to let us down. They're going to d disappoint us because that's not their role to mm. be our exemplar. Yeah. They're not divine, right? They're not perfect. They're human beings like us with different callings, yeah. right? And so one of the roles that I now see in retrospect that doubt, so we think of faith and doubt, we think if you were to ask someone what's the opposite of faith, I think a lot of people would say doubt. Yeah. But... Okay. Doubt can play a purifying role mm. in our faith. Doubt can help purify our faith. If our faith is centered on something other than God and mm. God manifesting, revealing himself in Christ, mm -hmm. then our faith is misplaced mm. and we will be let down and that will produce doubt. Mm. And when we experience that doubt, the positive function of that doubt is to tell us You've been putting your faith in the wrong object. You were never supposed to have faith in Joseph Smith or Brigham Young or whomever from the history of the church. Or if you look at the book of Genesis, right? I mean, it starts with um, you know, Adam and Eve get themselves kicked out of the garden, right? Um, Noah like saves humankind, but then he's like, he's like lying there drunk, mm -hmm. right? Um, he puts a curse on his <laughs> grandson, right? Mm -hmm. Because of something that his son did, which makes no sense, right? Abraham's story, Abraham's the father of the faithful. Well, Abraham, his his family's not like a picture of domestic harmony or something, right? Isaac and Rebecca show favoritism with their two sons in ways that are awful, dreadful. You know, Jacob, uh, Jip, you know, like, like um, Jacob... Um, Bilks his brother yeah, out of right. his birthright and his blessing. Uh, Jacob's, All of them. Jacob's Everyone. sons are a total disaster. Reuben sleeps with one of his father's wives. The lot J Joseph is like a little snit who doesn't seem to realize that he's making his brothers feel inferior to him, right? Um, the brothers try to kill him, and then they're like, I know, we won't s <laughs> kill him. We'll do something better. We'll sell him into slavery for the rest of his life. You yeah. know, and like, you can just keep going. You know, Solomon, well, David, right? Man yeah. after the Lord's own heart, he commits murder and adultery. Solomon, wisest man in the world, he builds God's temple and then he fills it with idols and so on. You know, what a mess. Yeah. Even 
in the New Testament, Peter, right? I'll never deny you. And the first chance denies him three times. This is not a book of exemplars. This is not what it's meant to be, right? We have, the the book has an exemplar in it, right? It's Christ. These other people are not meant to be our exemplars. So if we look at church history and we're expecting this is, church history is like a book of exemplars. Yeah. We're going to be disappointed. They will let us down, just like these guys in the Bible will let us down. That's not their role. Mm. And so doubt is doubt does not have to be a bad thing. One way that doubt can help us is it helps sort of purify our faith, purge our faith of like ah. putting our faith in the wrong things so that we can center mm. our faith more exactly in the right place. Are you saying that doubt can identify that that's what's happening? Is that what you're saying? Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. Like if you if, if doubt is showing up, are you saying that it's a sign that perhaps it's in the wrong? I think often, at often. least at least often, okay. doubt can be a sign that hey, maybe maybe I put my faith in the wrong thing. I mean, think of it like this: mm. if, if what you're looking, if someone were looking for a peace of mind and a sense of security. And they found that they kept putting their sense of security on the stock market. Yeah. The stock market's going to like give me financial security or whatever. And then that keeps being a source of trouble yeah. for them. They yeah. feel insecure. Then maybe the stock market is not a good source of security, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, so same thing here. If you're putting this sort of trust in, you're, you're placing your concerns for security kind of and your desire for an exemplar and so on in like one of the people from the history of the church yeah and that's not working out for you they're letting you down yeah maybe that's telling you they were never where you were supposed to be putting that faith in the first place you put faith in christ and then that doesn't mean that god doesn't use that's christ right. doesn't use these people of course he uses us yeah. and we all know how weak and fragile and broken we are yeah right and so that like it it actually we actually learn good things i think by seeing that the people in the bible the people in the scriptures the people in the history of the church were human and had weaknesses like us because it tells us that god works with fallible humans like us hurrah right like that's that's good news yeah it just makes me think of the of in the book of mormon uh, at the very beginning, you see uh, Lehi, he has this vision and it's like he sees Jerusalem being destroyed and the next words that come out of his mouth is how great and marvelous, how merciful mm. the Lord is. Mm-hmm. And But the it's, but this place is, is destroyed? <laughs> yeah, they destroyed it, they messed it up and he was still merciful to them. And then he, then he mm. follows to say at the end of that chapter, I'm going to show you even more examples. Right. Over and over and over again how how merciful God is. Right. And right. I find right. it interesting right. to see right. that a lot of this journey that you're on, it's that attack on the Book of Mormon because, uh, well, I'm saying a lot of the research mm. of, you know, the Book of the Hebrews, right, is the mm. Book of Mormon true? Because once you take that away, you know, that's that primary truth. It just, everything else falls. Once you, t- and even Joseph Smith, right? If Joseph Smith isn't a prophet, then if I can, if I can get it there, then then down goes the rest, right? Mm-hmm. And I know that's a, that that's very that's a very cliche thing at times for people to mention, but the more I'm hearing your story, I'm feeling like mm. it's like a lot of it's back at the person, mm-hmm. the person, and then oh, the book. But it's never um never is not the right word to say. I want to say 
of the exemplar that you mentioned of, of it being in Jesus Christ, right? Right. So the focus, so, so what is the Book of Mormon a witness of? It's Jesus, a witness of Jesus, Jesus Christ. Christ. Yeah. When Joseph Smith makes, when Joseph Smith starts telling his family and others about having been called to be a prophet, yeah. right, he's saying that he saw Christ, right? He's he's called as an apostle he's, of Jesus Christ. He's called as a prophet by Christ. So the the faith there is actually centered on Christ, but Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon are just instruments yeah. through which Christ is working. The, the instrument is not the thing itself, right? The, the instrument is not the focus of our faith. The focus of our faith is Christ, but then we realize that we learn things about Christ through the instrumentality of the Book of Mormon. So, so the Book of Mormon itself doesn't have to be perfect. And in fact, the Book of Mormon says on its title page, yeah. this book is not perfect, right? It says, yeah. you know, don't don't throw away the things of God, yeah. right? And the things of Christ, right? Because of the weaknesses of men. And so that that's, that's a, I mean, that kind of says there what yeah. I've been saying, right? Mm. Like, like don't, put, so, so, so on that model, right? Like, don't put your faith in like the uh, things that may just be the weaknesses of the authors coming through, in this or book, the faith in your them. faith, right, or in them, or, or the translator, whatever, put your faith in what they are pointing to, which is Christ. So at the time, I was questioning whether Joseph Smith was a prophet and whether the Book of Mormon was actually scripture. Um, I, um, you asked earlier, before we started recording, um, yeah, yeah. You were asking about sort of what was, excuse me, what was kind of the last straw yeah. for you, for me in like when I, when I did stop believing at that point. And it's, I don't, I don't know if I've talked about this on other podcasts, but it's, it's kind of weird. I had, I had come to question whether I could rely on my spiritual experiences. I'd had them, mm. but like I said, I, the idea had occurred to me like, Maybe these experiences are just coming from inside of me. Maybe they're not coming from outside of me with God, right? Mm. And so I was looking, and like I said, I, I had been like a science kid, very sort of rationally grounded. And so I was looking for historical evidence to show me that Joseph Smith really was a prophet. Yeah. And I had found a couple historical sources that, I was aware of a couple sources that had not been published before. And one of them, it was the Nauvoo Journal, of, or purported to be the Nauvoo Journal of Sarah Stoddard that told like a, um, like a, about a miraculous event that Joseph Smith had been part of. And because it was recorded in a contemporaneous journal, I thought, well, there you go. That shows, you know, this happened. Mm -hmm. And then another source that I'd become acquainted with is actually a set of sources. It was a collection of sources created by the family of um, Joseph Smith's brother, Samuel Harrison Smith. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that turned out, so, so that had a lot of prophecies mm -hmm. that Joseph Smith had made that had been fulfilled like to the letter, like mm -hmm, exactly. Mm -hmm. And so I put a lot of stock in these sources. They, they, they came down through the families of the people who had created them. Mm -hmm. um, and they seemed really legit, right? And then um, 
I was planning, so I was basing some of my remaining, I'd been losing my faith, but some of my remaining faith, I was kind of putting on those pillars of those Mm. sources. Mm. And then I started investigating those sources a lot more closely because I wanted to quote those sources and things that I planned to write. And so I wanted to verify for sure, are these sources 100% legit, no question about it. And I ended up discovering that in both cases, the sources were pious forgeries that had been created by the families of the descendants. Um, There were just a a number of clues that showed that. And so I, because those had still been like some of the things that I was grounding my faith on, right? Like if if, if my faith only had like a few pillars left and you take a couple of them out, right? It's it's done for, you know? Mm. And so that my remaining faith collapsed. And I still thought that the church was a good thing. Um, like I said, my childhood experience with it had been wonderful. I, I thought it was good in people's lives. So I, I didn't leave at that time. I stayed active. But then I started to become kind of increasingly alienated. I, mm. th- there were just, in some ways, there were just a lot of things that bugged me. I would go mm. to church. People would say dumb things. <laughs> So you started to just notice all of it. <laughs> and I started feeling increasingly alienated. I started feeling I didn't really want to go to church mm. anymore. Um, and so, uh, and then I started in my research, I was continuing my research all the time, but I started in my research take, adopting the the model. So, so one, one of the things that I do as a historian is I create explanatory models, yeah. right? So the question is not what's the absolute truth here because absolute truth about history is hard to come by, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What we can do is we can create a model to explain, well, if this is this person's motivation, okay. then here's what we would expect them to do. Yeah. We should be able to predict their yeah. behavior based on those motivations. Yeah. And if they're doing things that line up with that prediction, that yeah. tends to confirm the model. Or... You might have another competing model, maybe the opposite motivations mm. here, right? So maybe the model of Joseph Smith as well, he's religiously sincere here, and then the model that like con he's man. he's a con man or opportunist here. And then can keep that and, consistency. And then, right. And then you compare, right? You compare how much does this model explain versus this model. Yeah. So at this point, I had ended up adopting the model of Joseph Smith as opportunist. Mm. There were some things that I was seeing in the history where I thought, well, you know. That could be explained if Joseph Smith was actually, he was just in it for himself. He's yeah. just trying to, you know, money, sex, power, right? Yeah. And so that was the model I was working with. And so um, I, th- this this brings us to where I left the church, right? Because I, um, Joseph Smith had been, well, he'd been a hero figure for me. He'd been an exemplar for me. Yeah. Right? He really yeah. had. And I, I'd had like a really intense sort of emotional bond with him. I, um, I have, I have, I have two dads. So my mm. mom was married multiple times. I have a natural dad and an adoptive dad. And um, during my teenage years, my natural dad was back on the East Coast. Mm. We talked once in a blue moon on the phone, but I, mm. I didn't see him for several years because we lived two thousand miles apart. My mm. adoptive dad and I weren't getting along partly because mm. he didn't like some of the controversial subjects I was digging into in my history work. Mm. And so for a while as a teenager, 17, 18 years old, I felt like 
maybe I didn't really have a father, like a father relationship with someone. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of slotted Joseph Smith. I kind of slotted Joseph Smith into that role. I, mm. Joseph Smith became a kind of spiritual father figure for me. Interesting. So when I started thinking several years later that he was basically a conman, that he was an opportunist, that was devastating for me. It was devastating because mm. he had been a hero. He'd been emotionally important to me. He'd been an exemplar to me. Um, he had... Um, I, I thought when I came to think he was an opportunist, I thought I've taken the restoration so seriously. I've taken the Book of Mormon so seriously, but I thought he hadn't. Mm. And that just was like re- so disillusioning and painful to me. Mm. And it was during that time that I decided to leave the church. I thought, mm. um, like I said earlier, I thought instead of waiting for the church to excommunicate me, I'll take care of that myself. Thank you. Right. Like, <laughs> and, um, <laughs> It's more efficient. Much more efficient. And and I was friends with Mike Quinn, and I'd seen him go through excommunication, how painful that was. I was friends with Maxine Hanks, who was also one of the September 6th. I, you know, I knew people had been excommunicated. I didn't want to, I didn't want to go through that. So I thought mm. I would love to have something to contribute to the church community, but I'd always hoped with my history work to have things to contribute. And now the mm. things that I was seeing, I was seeing su- things in such a negative light that I thought, if I publish these things, it's not going to be a contribution. They, they mm. won't, they, they, the church won't benefit from that. So it's like, mm. you know, if I take a jackhammer to the foundations of a building, am I contributing to the building? No, <laughs> right? Like, I, and so I thought, um, I thought I, I sh- for everybody's sake, kind of, I should leave. Mm. And so that was, that was when I put in my letter. July 24th, 2005. Mm-hmm. You bring that letter in and you've come to this conclusion. You put Joseph Smith as your exemplar, as you say, and you felt betrayed by him to a degree. Yeah, right. You felt betrayed by the manner that he took the Book of Mormon, didn't take it seriously, as seriously as you did. Well, that was what I thought. At the, yeah. at the time, mm-hmm. right? That's what's going through your mind. Right. And then you put that letter on the, you come talk to your bishop and then he... You said before how he had a, it was challenging for him and you kind of were covering him at the time. Um, and so then you receive the letter back. You feel a little more uh, sad about it mm-hmm. because of the connection you felt that was, there was almost a disconnection. Where do you go from there? So in retrospect, I call this my personal wandering in the wilderness. I... Um, was an ex-Mormon atheist living on the Wasatch Front here in Utah. So I became involved in the ex- local ex-Mormon community. So there were a lot of ex-Mormon social events. There was something called the Ex-Mormon Conference. I think it was every October. Mm. Um, I went to that a couple times. Um, and uh, I was planning to... I was continuing with my research. I was planning to... Start. I started publishing in a very small way. I was planning on doing a lot of publishing. Um, but I, my ultimate aim at the time was I was going to lay out an entirely naturalistic a- account of the rise of Mormonism. I was going to... Um, and, and it centered on this idea of Joseph Smith as an opportunist. Mm. Um, and... Um, I had stopped believing in God because I thought at the time that I didn't see enough evidence for God. 
hmm. and because of the problem of evil and suffering. So I looked at like the sufferings of young children hmm. and I just didn't know how to square that with a loving God. And so um, I still, though, I wanted there to be some larger meaning. I, I'd stopped believing in anything supernatural and I'd kind of, honestly, I'd given up. I thought... Hmm. In retrospect, this sounds really, really silly to me, okay, really silly. I thought that because I'd spent so long studying the history of the church, and I'd mm. also spent a fair amount of time studying theology, like not just Latter-day Saint theology, yeah. but yeah. theology more broadly, arguments about the existence of God and the nature of God, I thought I've given God every chance, kind of, I've given God every out, and mm. it's not working. It's like hitting my head against a wall. Mm. And so I... In what now seems to me just like a lot of hubris, I thought, I've, I've canvassed it all. I've covered it all. You know, I've, I've, mm. I've looked into all the possibilities. And if God really mm. probably exists, I would have figured it out by now. Mm. And so I thought, I just need to give up. This is not working. I just need to give up on religion. I just need to give up on God. So I did. Now, something that happened in this time, like, so back when I was an ex-Mormon atheist, I got hired by Brian Hales to research Joseph Smith and polygamy. So for those who don't know, Brian C. Hales um, is the author who has published most extensively on Joseph Smith's practice and teaching of polygamy. He has a three-volume set titled Joseph Smith's Polygamy. It seriously, it stacks probably about this high. Mm. Hey? And it has um, the, um, can they see that? I can't yeah, tell where the camera's it. <laughs> like, <laughs> probably this high. Okay. Um, How many inches do we just verify? Um, yeah. huh? like, that was like seven inches. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think about seven inches, yeah. Um, so Brian wanted, he was coming very much from a faithful Latter-day Saint perspective. I mean, he, he was literally singing with the choir. He was in, he was in the tabernacle choir okay. you know, at the time. Um, Brian was an anesthesiologist working at a hospital he wanted to, but he wanted to do work on Joseph Smith and polygamy. He wanted it to be serious work. He, so he wanted to canvas all the sources. Mm. He wanted to gather Everything. every source that's ever been cited and anything that's ever been written on the subject of Joseph Smith and polygamy and then see what else could be found. Okay. So this is a massive undertaking. In fact, I think he did. He had no idea how massive it was before he started, and I think if he had known, he might not have tried it <laughs> because it was. It ended up. It 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 went on for years. Right? Wow. So Brian knew that he didn't have the time personally to find all these sources, right? Because he's job yeah, at the hospital, yeah. right? So he hired me. That you. was my job, was to collect every source that could be found on Joseph Smith and polygamy. So I became an archive rat, right? Like I, I, I practically lived at the church archives for two years. This is like going back to being 17, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, loved I, was, it. I was there all the time, yeah. And um, for two years, and I canvassed all, this, the, all the repositories in Utah. I went to the Utah State History Division. I went up to the library at Utah State, spent a lot of time at the BYU library and so on. I had friends out in California get things for me from the Huntington Library out there. I went to the Yale Library twice to access the massive, amazing D. Michael Quinn collection wow. and other collections that they house there. 
Quinn had access back in the 80s. He had basically unfettered access to the church archives. They actually let him go and browse the, shell, the, the stacks where the sources were himself. They would never do that today, okay? But they let him do that. So he found all kinds of things no, nobody else had access to. So I got to find all that stuff in his so you, collection, transcribe it all, right, and, and give the, all this to Brian. And then Brian had me research to find more sources that had never been cited by anyone and to research the background of a lot of these sources, right? Like, who Where, was this person who made this claim, who said this thing about Joseph Smith? Wow. What was there? You were talking earlier about biases. He was having me investigate the biases of the people who were telling, giving these different accounts. So at that time, Brian and I were actually coming from opposite perspectives. So <laughs> he thought that Joseph Smith, you know, was like the greatest prophet ever, basically, mm. right? Like, and I thought Joseph Smith was a scoundrel. Mm. You know, he was just making up these things about money, sex, and power. So, so Brian saw Joseph's polygamy as being motivated by obedience to divine command. Mm. And I saw it as being all about sex, mm. right? But nonetheless, I was doing the research for Brian. So once early in the research, Brian started to ask me kind of where I was at in my faith or my Did he not church. know before? He didn't know, but I think he, I had very long hair at the time. I probably yeah. did not come across as super LDS, hmm. but like he. Um, he knew your ability. Um, he asked, he started to ask me once where I was at with everything. And then he stopped himself and he said, it doesn't matter. Hmm. And so uh, Brian was amazing. He was a really good boss. Um, he was really kind, really helpful. And uh, yeah, I, I actually got to see during that time that Brian had something in, my, in his life that I didn't have in mine, and that was peace, mm. you know? And so even though mm. I very much didn't believe, I could see, really see the benefits of the restoration in his life. So he had peace. You said that the way that you said that to me, it felt like there was something behind that. In your perspective, whenever you felt that he had peace, what, what was that like for you? It almost seemed like it was a contrast for you. Oh, it was a contrast. So one time, so we used to meet every week because he's, he lived up in Layton, um, north of Salt Lake, but he sang in the choir. And so we used to meet every Wednesday, I think it was, every Wednesday night after choir practice, we would meet in the basement of the conference center, <laughs> and I would hand off sources to him and explain things to him, and he would give me my check, right? Well, one time, for some reason, I went and actually visited him at his home in Leighton. I think he was going to give me some book or something. And I just remember we got to his house, and I just thought, like, wow. There was just like an atmosphere of peace in his house. It just seemed mm. like mm. I thought he mm. has a really good life. You know, he really has peace in his life, and I I don't mind. You know, um, so yeah, I, I I I definitely I saw that very much as a contrast. Now, one thing: there are a lot of people who there are a lot of ex Mormons and sort of disaffected Latter Day Saints, maybe who uh, are critical. Mm. Of Brian Hills, mm. because Brian presents a view of Joseph Smith where, you know, Joseph was, he was doing things for the right reasons. Mm -hmm. He's basically, you know, he's a good guy. And Brian 
interprets on certain controversial issues surrounding Joseph Smith and polygamy, Brian interprets them in a way that's sort of more conservative or faithful, yeah. whereas obviously people from a more disaffected or critical perspective are going to interpret them more like I was interpreting them yeah. at the time. So one of the things that I noticed, though, was that um, I thought I, I, I could see Brian's biases from my perspective, right? Yeah. And so I thought Brian would, if there was a source that seemed to say something about um, Joseph Smith that was really negative yeah. or that Brian disliked, he would have me research that source extra to kind of see what the person's angle was. Was hmm. there some reason they hmm. might be making this up or exaggerating or whatever? And I remember thinking to myself, I didn't say this, but I remember thinking, oh, come on, Brian, like, you just have to accept that this source is right. This is what happened. And then I would actually research and I would often find out, you know what? That person really did have an angle. They had an axe to grind. Here was, here was what they had to benefit mm, from saying mm, that. Mm. And I'm not saying that, like we talked about earlier. Yeah, from I'm not saying that means you totally dismiss the source, right? Because yeah. it's like I was saying, you know, we look at things each from a different angle and that gives us our that gives us a fuller picture. Right? Yeah. So we don't just dismiss those sources, but at the same time, we do have to contextualize them That's right. and recognize they had their biases too. So I'd been seeing Brian's biases. Whose biases was I blind to? Yours. This guy's, yeah. right? Um, and so uh, over the course of two years plus, because he had me do some extended research beyond that, um, I helped Brian gather some 1,500 sources on Joseph Smith and polygamy that he cites in his uh, books. 1,500. 1,500. Yeah. And that is— That's a lot. I mean, if you were to compare Brian's books with the number of sources cited in anything else that had ever been written on the subject, any other one book on polyg Joseph Smith's polygamy or something would probably have cited— a fifth or a sixth of that or something. I mean, he wow. just, he blew it out of the water. Wow. Right? With you, mm -hmm. with your help. Right. So, so by the end of that project, I think it's fair to say that Brian and I had become the, the two biggest experts on the sources on Joseph Smith and polygamy. Plus, I had done research on Joseph Smith's polygamy before that. Mm. And I did further research after that work for Brian. I published on Joseph Smith's relationship with Fanny Alger. I have a couple more papers that have been submitted for publication on that subject and related, you know, I'm doing work on related subjects. And so I did all that research while I was out of the church. Mm. And then um, I came back. So uh, when I went up to... Um, so, so, so people think that if someone knows the details of the history of the church, that's like a one-way ticket out mm -hmm. of the church, right? It's like a one-way door that only you goes know, out and you, you can't come back, mm -hmm. right? Well, I mean, I could make a pretty good argument that I know the sources on Joseph Smith and polygamy as well as anybody, right? Mm. And I did come back. Okay, so how that happened? And so I started reading just like anti-religious literature thinking, I got it, I just need to totally give up on religion 
and sort of strip away whatever last vestiges of religious belief I have inside myself. Interesting. And so I was very actively reading. So this is like the the mirror story of my family home evening story when I was 17. So my, my how I came to doubt in the first place was weird, right? Mm-hmm, like you wouldn't expect, mm-hmm. you go to Deseret Book for family home evening and you like, <laughs> that's the beginning of your faith crisis, right? The beginning of my return to belief in God mm. um, was similarly strange. Interesting. Um, so I was reading in something called Skeptic Magazine which is just what it sounds like. It's My- Michael Shermer, for whoever's heard of him, he's like a leader in the skeptic movement. Mm. The skeptic movement says there's no supernatural, paranormal, there's mm. no religious dimension of mm. life. Um, and so I was actively reading Skeptic Magazine, edited by this Michael Shermer, to sort of, you know, remove, again, the last vestiges of religious belief from my mind. And there was an ad in the book. Interesting for a book called Biocosm that was about the origins of the universe. And the book purported to give an explanation for how the universe could have an ultimate meaning even without anything supernatural. Now, Mm. even though Mm. I didn't believe in the supernatural anymore, like I said, when I was a teenager, ever since I was a teenager, I really was hungry for life to have a meaning, a larger meaning. And so one of the terribly sad things for me about becoming an atheist was mm. that life had no ultimate meaning anymore. I mean, mm. everything that I cared about would one day be destroyed. Everyone mm. that I cared about would one day be destroyed. I thought this is how it was. It was depressing, mm. but I thought that that was reality. Mm. And so, but I, wa- I wanted a larger meaning. So this, because this book was advertised in Skeptic Magazine and endorsed by the editor, Michael Shermer, I thought it can't be some supernatural mumbo jumbo stuff. This has got to be something serious. Hmm. So I checked it out from the University of Utah Library and started reading. And in the first half of the book, he lays out in detail what's called the fine tuning of the universe for the existence of life. Hmm. So I haven't heard, I'm not familiar with that one. Okay, this is a fascinating problem in cosmology and it's one of the interesting reasons to believe in God. Interesting. Okay? But it, do you think that that was, that was his intent? That wasn't his intent. That was not this author's intent. No, no. I'll, I'll but they come don't, back to they that. don't realize yeah. that you look at those gaps. Like, <laughs> that's the gift that you have. Well, so, so he, um, he, makes, he lays out the fine-tuning, which, like I said, is a problem. It's a problem in physics and cosmology. So, basically, in cosmology, they've recognized that if the fundamental constant of gravity were just slightly smaller, meaning like one part in billions or trillions, mm. the all the matter in the early universe would have collapsed into black holes. You just wouldn't have tiny... galaxies. You wouldn't have stars. If you didn't have stars, you wouldn't have planets where you'd have life. If the gravitational force had been that much weaker, mm. the gravity, the, the matter would not have clustered together into... Uh, galaxies, it would have dispersed hmm. evenly throughout the universe. Hmm. Again, no life. No hmm. stars equals no life. And how right? much of a difference in gravity? It was like one in billions or trillions. Really? But then it turns out that's just the beginning hmm. because there are several fundamental laws of nature. There's like the, the strong nuclear force, the weak nuclear force also, yeah. right? And if you, with, with several forces of nature, 
if you vary those fundamental constants very, very slightly, mm. you have no life. You have no stars. You have no life. Mm. And so um, mm. what this guy showed, he quoted a great astronomer, Britain's astronomer royale, pointed by the queen, right? Sir Martin Rees, of the laws of the universe being set in such a way that life could exist is one in 10 to the 200th power. What? A billion is 10 to the ninth. Like we're talking like a, a billion, 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 billion. But billion, oh my gosh. Actually a little bit more than that, but yeah. So basically the number of particles in the universe is estimated to be one in 10 to the 80th. So if the if if we were playing cosmic lottery and it's like you have to pick in order for life to exist in some un, new universe you have to pick the exact particle in the universe the exact right particle then within that particle there's another universe mm-hmm. of the same size you mm-hmm. have to pick the exact right particle in that universe too and then you have to still and then it's still like a one in like a trillion 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 chance that, which is which is like so which is basically it's almost the same as saying we're not here, right? <laughs> like, and yet it seems strangely like we are, wait, wait, you know. Wait, so wait. like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, That's interesting, um, though. So then the author actually lays out some of the attempts that have been made to explain the fine tuning, hmm. and he shows why they don't work. So what was his what was his point? Well, so his point. Okay, so 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 this is what I was wondering. So I got through the first half of the book. And he has shown that the problem of fine-tuning is this immense problem and that it doesn't have a good explanation that's been offered yet. And so then I'm so primed for the second half of this book. I'm like, okay, what's the answer? <laughs> why do we exist? Why, why is there any of this here? And then his answer is that the universe, our universe was fine-tuned for the existence of life by our distant, distant, descendants out in the future. That time is a closed loop. Okay. So when the universe ends, it starts over. And it start? our, yeah, our descendants no... are going to make it so that it is the way that it is now. So it's the future will cause the past. But there's and still the gap. Thinking, there's still the gap of where it even started. Is that what you're saying? Well, well, no, because he's well, he's how saying did the future that, get there. <laughs> But the future gets there from the past, but the past gets there from the future. So it's just, it's, Want to turn it's, around, a, anyway. it's a circular logic, right? So I thought, wait hmm. a minute, he thinks this is more likely than God? Like, I, I hadn't thought that there was a God, but I didn't think God was this unlikely. This seemed crazy to me, right? And so suddenly this blew everything open for me. Mm. If this was like, if the family home evening experience was doubting my faith in the restoration, this was doubting my atheism, mm. right? Because suddenly I'm like, wait, something doesn't compute here. This doesn't fit. I, yeah, yeah. And so then I started thinking, you know, for the last five, for the last three years or whatever it had been, I've been just looking at anti-religious literature. I've just been looking at the case against God. And now I've stumbled onto something that indicates maybe there is a God. Hmm. And so... If I really want to find truth, I need to start looking at both sides again. Mm. And so I started thinking about a lot more, a lot of things that I had been ignoring. Mm. And one of those things is 
um, back when I had been a teenager, when I was 18 years old, when I was doing the research at the church archives, um, I, I told you I'd take the bus down to the church archives. Yeah. I'd take the bus home. And there was on State Street at that time, there was a crosswalk. Now there's like a median in the middle, so there's no crosswalk. Yeah, yeah. But it wasn't like a, one of those crosswalks with the light. It was a crosswalk where there are just lines on the road. You just walk out in front of the cars. And, yeah, and they're supposed to stop. They're just supposed to <laughs> not kill you, right? And um, I had crossed, because I did so much research downtown, I had been over this crosswalk like 200 times before, right? So I was very comfortable walking out there. And uh, I thought... Habitually, you just walk. Yeah, I thought yeah. they don't... Nobody wants to run over some kid in the street. They're they're going to watch what they're doing. I, <laughs> at that time, I didn't drive, so I didn't realize how yeah, distracted right. drivers are. Yeah. Okay, so um, I walked out and I started. Well, I started stepping off the curb, and I had a voice in my mind say, "Don't go out in front of that car." Mm. And there was a car that was rounding through the intersection, turning right off of South Temple, on the State Street. So I took what the voice said very literally. I actually did walk out into the street. I just didn't walk out into this car's lane. I didn't walk out in front of this car. I walked out in the street. I stopped right before its lane. The car didn't stop. There's a teenager in the crosswalk. The car didn't stop. So I'm looking um, as the car passes in front of me. I'm looking through the passenger side window. And there's How close a, are we talking? Oh, I... I um, probably no more than this. I was just a few feet from its lane. Right? Wow. So as that car passed in front of me, I looked through the passenger window and there was a passenger, front seat passenger and the driver. And they were both bent forward like this. Right? They were like looking for something on the floor. Somebody had spilled this big gulp or something, right? Yeah. Like they, there's something. Oh my gosh. Um, you know, they weren't looking at the road just after they would have hit me. The driver popped his head up over the steering wheel, looked up, and then looked back down. I realized I just almost died. I walked the rest of the way across the street thinking, like, mm. I, if that voice hadn't warned me, I would have died. Right? Mm. Now, I held on to this for a long time as a reason to believe in God. right? But then when I had become like hyper-skeptical about God, I thought, well... Well, six million Jews died in the Holocaust. What makes me think I'm special? You know, mm, like mm. God shouldn't have saved me. And so because I thought that God shouldn't have saved me if mm. six million Jews died in the Holocaust, then I thought God must not have saved me. Mm. Like somehow this this had not been miraculous. Somehow I must mm. have known what was going to happen or something. Mm. So once my mind had been open to the idea of God again it, by this author, James Gardner inadvertently <laughs> convincing me, maybe there's a mind behind the universe after all. I started, I was actually working in downtown Salt Lake. I would pa walk past that spot where that had happened like every day. Mm. And so I started going to the spot where that crosswalk had been. Mm. And I would like, look, I can't be like, okay, I was facing forward this way. Mm. The car would have been coming from over here. Mm. How much can I see the cars over there in my peripheral vision? Could, have, like, like could wanted... I have somehow known what uh, was going to happen? Or mm. and so, I after doing this kind of experiment over and over, I started to realize there is no way that I could have known this. Hmm. Right? There's no way. And the, the the more I thought about it, the less sense it made that somehow I would have known this. I thought this came from outside of me. Hmm. This is like somebody 
you know, like if, if somebody had been standing there on the curb who like. knew what was going to happen, telling me, ah, what, be careful, right? Like this is going to happen here. Um, and so I started thinking, well, not only is there a mind behind the universe, apparently, but this mind actually cares about me. Mm. God is involved in my life. And so that kind of got me searching more. Um, I, I believe that there was a God, but I didn't know, well, if there's a God, what does God want of us? What does mm, God want me mm. to do with my life? Mm. You know? And so um, I was kind of experimenting with different religious understandings. And then, um, like, then one of the most tragic things in my life happened. I had a younger brother, my youngest brother, Charles. Mm. Um, he was 25. And um, I saw him one night. We didn't usually get to see each other. I saw him one night. We had a good conversation. And the next day he was gone. He was dead. Whoa. And um, officially to this day, there's no cause of death. They did an autopsy. They did a toxicology. And we, my other younger brother and I, we think from various things that Charles had actually combined different medications that don't mm. go together. Their side effects compound. So, you know, like Heath Ledger, yeah. he died from, he didn't actually take an overdose of anything. He just took things that don't go together. Mm. They interacted. They slowed his breathing, his breathing stopped. That's what happened with Charles. Mm. He, they said his, he just stopped breathing. Mm. And so we think it's because he took medications that don't go together. So mm. like um, public service announcement, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. look up what your medications and their interactions are actually interactions checkers online, right? But like, like in, but Charles, Charles hadn't know that. He, it wasn't intentional. Yeah. He, At all. It wasn't intentional. Interesting. No. So um, he, Charles was just like the best guy in the world, right? So like um, people, when someone dies, um, mm. usually people will speak well of that person. Everybody spoke well of Charles while he was alive. I've never met someone who did not like Charles. In the last day of his life, uh, he spent time mm. teaching his nephews how to, he'd had a cleaning job before. So he was teaching his nephews good techniques for cleaning. He, he took his uh, pregnant cousin to like the store and different places to help her. He visited our elderly parents to help them out. This is just the kind of person he was, right? He just, he loved to make other people happy. And, and then he was suddenly gone, you know? And at his viewing, there was no one there who was not just ripped to shreds. It was the, it, it was the saddest thing that I've ever seen. And I looked at my brother's body laying out um, there and I thought, I am never going to see him again. And I, I thought there might be some sort of afterlife, but I thought it was like a vague, just purely mental afterlife. I didn't think there was a resurrection or anything. And, and I wasn't even sure that, that there was something. Mm. And so that sent me reeling. It really got me searching. I wanted to know, was there a res is there a resurrection, right? Like, did, has God actually mm. revealed something to us about what this is all about, mm. this life that we're in? And so I started really studying Christianity again more intensively. And I, um, a really good Christian friend, non-LDS Christian friend, in fact, he's actually critical of the church, but um, <laughs> really, but he's a really humble, good man. 
he actually, I was visiting with him because I, I was speaking at a conference and uh, he showed me this Christian bookstore near there and where he, because he lived out there and he offered to buy me a book. And so I chose this book by the Anglican scholar N.T. Wright. Yeah, love Big, Wright. big time. Yeah, yeah New Testament scholar. Yeah. His magisterial tome, The Resurrection of the Son of God. So this yeah, yeah, is really, it's this thick. Yeah, it's great. Right? And I, so I started reading that and he makes, he analyzes all the information about the resurrection that's in the scriptures, that's in the early sources about Christi historical sources outside yeah. the Bible about Christianity. And he makes, at the end, he makes a couple key arguments about what must have happened in order to start the, hmm. start Christianity and to start the story that Jesus had risen from the dead. He shows that given the beliefs of the time, uh, that people believed at the time of, in spirits, they believed in apparitions, that a dead person could appear to you mm -hmm. uh, and you could interact with that dead person. You could see them, interact with them, but that didn't mean they were resurrected. They were just a ghost, a mm. spirit, mm. right? So he argued that in order for the early Christians to have believed that Jesus was resurrected, that he, this was actually his body, not just like a ghost, yeah. that not only would they have had to have seen him after his death, which could have just been a ghost, right? Mm. The tomb would have had to have been empty. Because mm. if the tomb wasn't empty, if his body's still there, they would have thought this is a ghost, right? Yeah. Because the body's there, the body's not alive again. And so mm. if... Jesus' tomb was empty and all these people are seeing him, then that makes an argument that he actually rose from the dead. At least if you already have a belief in God, which I did again at this time, then certain things become plausible that otherwise wouldn't become plausible. Like someone being resurrected probably doesn't make any sense if you don't believe that there's a God or something like a God. But once you do believe that there's a God, right? Yeah. Then, then evidence open. could potentially show that something like this probably happened. And so I came to believe that there, that the resurrection had occurred. And then I thought, okay, well, that means, what does that mean? Hmm. That means God has revealed himself to me in Christ. God has reached out to me through Christ hmm. to have a relationship with, with me. Hmm. And so I became a Christian. Right? Hmm. So I, I actually was working uh, out of the, I was doing estate research um, out of the family history library. And I, I'm, I'm, so I should mention, I'm a professional researcher, right? So I yeah, do my yeah. own, I do research as an independent historian. I do my own projects. I also do research for clients, yeah. right? So at that time, I wasn't doing client research on Mormon history like I am now. I was doing client research on as, as hooking up heirs, lost heirs with estates where they might inherit money. So I was trying to locate, okay, interesting. figure out who the heirs yeah. were and locate them. Well, the hmm. world's largest repository of gene genealogical resources is right downtown in Salt Lake, <laughs> yeah. the Family History Library. So that's where we, the company I work for, that's where we did our research. Right? So every day, that's why I was walking past the place where when I was a teenager, the, the event that saved my life had happened. Mm. So I, one evening, mm. I'd been thinking about all of this, about Christ and so on. This is just a few weeks after Charles had died. I went off into one of the little classrooms in the family history library. It was empty. Nobody was in there. I knelt down and I prayed and I, I gave myself to Christ, right? Mm. Like I uh, like, like gave up. I repented, right? Recognized my sins and accepted Christ. And um, hmm. then um, I started trying to pursue the Christian life, right? Like I started visiting churches. I started... Um, like um, reading the Bible, reading the New Testament, particularly 
And I wanted to be closer to Christ. I wanted to be closer to God. And I remember that back early in my life, like when I was at BYU, that one of the things that really helped me feel closer to Christ was reading the Book of Mormon. Mm. And so I thought, <laughs> maybe I should try that. Now, remember, I thought at this time that Joseph Smith was an opportunist. I, I actually Still. felt, oh yeah, I felt certain from things, some things that I was seeing in the history of the church, I felt certain Justice Smith was an opportunist. And so um, I, um, but I thought, but the Book of Mormon seems to be like a good thing somehow, even, even <laughs> if it's, you know, like, like, like we have the idea of like good, good, bad fruit can't come from a good tree, but I thought maybe somehow bad fruit, good fruit had come from a bad tree, you know, like I thought maybe just miss a bad guy, but somehow the Book of Mormon like works like yeah. it, it did in my life. And so I started reading it devotionally to learn more, to come closer to Christ. And, and this seemed to, this was working. Like I felt this working. And then I just got really confused. I was like, what am I doing? This doesn't make <laughs> any sense at all. I, uh. I shouldn't be doing this. And so I, I actually went, back for some graduate work at Utah State at this point. How long and, was that time that you were reading? Oh, maybe a couple months or A couple something. months, okay, okay. And then- Before you said, like, uh -huh. no, 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 okay. Yeah, and, and then I, I thought, look, I'm going back to grad school. I don't really have time to sort all this out right now. I'm just gonna, if you will, put it on the shelf, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, like. Um, and so, um, so after I had decided to kind of put everything on the shelf when I went to grad school. I was studying with Philip Barlow in history up at Utah State. American religious history was my emphasis and particularly early Mormon history, of course. And um, I took a class from Philip Barlow on Joseph Smith biography and autobiography. And in that class, I had decided for, for the, my course paper, I had decided to do a paper on the first vision as Joseph Smith's calling as a seer. Hmm. And so re remember, I didn't think there was a first vision. I thought he made it up. But I recognized the first vision. I, I didn't think it existed as an experience, but I thought it existed for sure as a narrative. There's a yeah, first yeah, vision yeah. narrative. Yeah. And we need to explain what's the historical context in which this narrative emerged and what, was, what were its implications? What was the meaning of this narrative when it emerges? And I had thought the first vision, it's literally his first vision. Mm. So this is supposed to explain how he got the gift to be a seer, mm. the gift of seeing, his gift of second sight. Mm. And I found an account, there's a little known account of the first vision by John Alger, Joseph, mm. Fanny Alger's brother, okay, yeah, yeah. where he says that in Kirtland, Joseph, at the Joseph Smith Senior Home, Joseph Smith recounts the first vision. And he says that at the beginning of the vision, God touched his eyes. Really? And then he was able to see the vision. What? Right? And he actually, he remembers Joseph pointing to his eyes as he said this. Well, huh. what was interesting about this account is this is the only account of the first vision we have where Joseph told the first vision just to a private group of saints. Mm -hmm. It wasn't written for publication and it wasn't told to non-Mormons. All the other accounts that we have 
Actually, no, there's there's one exception. The Alexander Niebauer account, I forgot. This is one of just two accounts okay. where he, we know Joseph's telling the vision, not for public consumption, but just in an intimate setting. And it's the only account that we have of him telling the vision in a family setting. John Alger was apparently living with, Fanny Alger was living with Joseph Jr.'s family, helping as a servant, like a hmm. housemaid. John Alger, her younger brother, was living with Joseph Smith Sr.'s family, helping them out. So this is a, they're, they're like part of the family, kind of, right? And Fanny actually becomes part of the family, right? So like, <laughs> so like this is a family setting, and he's telling about the first vision. So he's going to disclose more about yeah. the first vision in an intimate family faithful LDS setting than he is like to the public. So mm. I was realizing that if you look at that detail, the touching of the eyes, yeah. the New Testament, mm. in Matthew and Luke, there are two blind men at Jericho. They call out to Jesus, Jesus, thou son of God, have mercy on me. Mm. And he, he says, what would you that I should do for you? And the man says, Lord, uh, my eyes that I may see. Jesus touches his eyes one by one, and the man is healed from blindness. So I, what I realized, wait, the first vision, the idea is it's like a healing from spiritual blindness. The touching of the eyes is a spiritual thing that heals the eyes so he can see spiritual things. Wow. Then I looked in the book of Abraham, Abraham 3, it says, God put his hand on Abraham's eyes and Abraham could see everything God had made with his hands. Book of Moses, what? it says God um, touched his. Told, well, he told Enoch to touch his, anoint his own eyes okay. with clay, but that's parallel to Jesus in the Gospel of John heals a blind man's eyes by anointing them with clay. The difference in the book of Moses is he, the Lord is doing it by proxy. He's having Enoch anoint his own eyes in mm -hmm. place of the Lord doing it. The brother of Jared, he doesn't touch his eyes. He touches the stones. And the he asks the brother of Jared, what is it you would that I should do for you? It's the same exact question asked by the blind man in the Gospels. Interesting. And the, the brother of Jared wants him to touch the stones. Why? So the stones will glow in their so barges they so they can see. Then he gives him the interpreters, which are two stones that he wears in front of his eyes so he can see spiritual things. It's like a pattern over mm. and over in Latter-day Saint scripture. Mm. And there are some parallel things in a couple of places in the Bible, like Isaiah's mouth being touched and yeah. purified so he can speak but for God. But in one of the accounts he says, mm. thy sins are forgiven thee. Mm -hmm. That's another piece. I don't want to get into the depths. Oh, right. right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that that is like when, you're right, that's like when Jesus is healing people in, I'm making a note of that. Um, uh, I'll tell you what I mean too after, because I think it's a little more private. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Um, mean, meaning like sacred. Oh, okay. 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 So... Um, I was thinking, okay, if this is Joseph Smith, um, this is how I become a seer, is this first vision. I was writing my paper on this. I was actually sitting in the library cafe at Utah State, and suddenly all kinds of things came together. Like, like, like a, a lot of history is connecting dots, mm -hmm. right? You just... You, we have the historical sources. We have the data points in those sources, but they don't become a narrative until we connect the dots to see the cause and effect relationships mm. between them. Okay. So suddenly I saw, I was thinking about um, 
the brother of Jared, this happens up on a mountaintop. Joseph Smith says in Nauvoo that in ancient times, mountaintops served as temples where people could receive ordinances. Brother of Jared, ancient world, mountaintop, this is a temple setting. He's conversing with the Lord, it says, in Ether 3, 3 through the veil. And the Lord puts his hand through the veil to touch the stones. And the brother of Jared sees the Lord's hand, and the Lord asks him a series of questions to test his faith and knowledge, beginning with the question about his hand. And once the brother of Jared has passed the test, the Lord admits him into his presence and tells him, you've been redeemed from the fall, which evokes the whole backstory of the creation and Adam and Eve. And then he gives him these white stones, which is Revelation 2.17, which right. Joseph quotes, to him that overcometh, I will give unto him a white stone in the which is written a new name which no man knoweth save him that receiveth it. Brother Jared. And then Joseph, right. And think of the brother of Jared, okay. Why do we call him that? Because we... Because name, it, the, the text name. didn't say his name, right? Mm. That is the idea of like a secret, sacred, esoteric name, mm -hmm. right? The withholding of a name, right? Mm. It's like the white stone, a new name that no one knows, right? Then uh, the brother of Jared is given a revelation that is so high, so great that he can't share it with others. So he just puts it in the sealed portion. Well, that, of course, is this, like, this is the temple. Yeah. You know, this is the apex of the endowment. These are the things that happen in detail. Before. In detail. Before. Years before, 15, no, 13 years before Joseph institutes the endowment in Nauvoo. Now, I had studied the Nauvoo endowment. I had studied connection, parallels of it with Freemasonry. Yeah. And as far as I was concerned, Justin Smith didn't know a thing about the Nauvoo Endowment until he became a Freemason mm -hmm. early in 1842. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I was seeing mm -hmm. the structure of the endowment is in the Book of Ether that he dictates in 1829. Then I started, I'd been working for years on my project on the last 116 pages of the Book of Mormon. Looking at what are the historical sources that talk about what was in it? It turns out People might oh, be surprised. Yeah, yeah. the research out, of what people said mm -hmm. after the people who knew about it, right? Mm -hmm. uh, that's the research you're referring to, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, so I've written a whole book on this, right? The last 116 pages reconstructing the Book of Mormon's missing stories. Um, but um, the um, uh, one of the major sources that I use there is an interview that someone did with Joseph Smith Sr., where they described. Mm how the interpreters got to the Nephites. So we know from the book of Ether how the interpreters got to the Jaredites. The mm -hmm, Lord gives mm -hmm. them to the brother of Jared on this mountaintop. Yeah. Right? We later know in the Book of Mormon, or maybe earlier in the Book of Mormon, that um, the Nephites had the interpreters. It never tells us how they got them. Okay. That seems like a big oversight. Which like the interpreters in... were important. So I actually can figure, if you look at who in the Book of Mormon first had those interpreters, it appears to be King Mosiah the first. Yeah. Well, his story was in the Lost Pages. We only get the mm -hmm. thumbnail sketch version in the Book of Omni, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? It's like 13 verses long. But his story was a long, complex story in the Lost Pages. If he's the one who got the interpreters, that the details of that story would have been in the Lost Pages in this 
interview that someone did with Joseph Sr. in 1830, he tells them about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, and then he tells them the stories, some stories from the Book of Mormon, and he tells them a story that is not in our Book of Mormon text, but it's about how the Nephites got the interpreters. What? Are you serious? And so, yep, scholars have pointed out that this is a gap in the Book hmm. of Mormon text that we have. Like, hmm. why doesn't it explain where they got the interpreters? And they've even posited that could have been in the Lost Pages. Well, this story Somebody recounting fits. what they knew about mm -hmm. it from stories of people that have exactly. seen it. And so in that narrative, he says, this guy, Fayette Lapham, who interviewed Joseph Sr., he says they were traveling in, after they got to their promised land sometime later, they have another sort of exodus, mm. right? And they're in between temples, apparently, because they have a tabernacle. That's a portable temple, right? Mm. And they're being led by the Liahona, right? Mm -hmm. uh, this guy. And the Liahona <laughs> leads him to, uh, it leads him to a, um, uh, yeah. an object, right? And he doesn't know what that object is, but he, he takes the object, he carries it into the tabernacle, and the voice of the Lord in the tabernacle, I'm assuming from behind the veil of the Holy of Holies where the Lord's presence dwells, the voice of the Lord says, take that object and put it on your face and cover your face in an animal skin. And he does, and he can see anything. It's the interpreters, right? And so at that point, he says, the Liahona stopped working because it had been replaced now with the interpreters. So that would account for why, how the Nephites got the interpreters, right? They're led to them by the Liahona is what this narrative is saying. And it would also explain another question scholars have raised. Why did the Nephites stop using the Liahona? Because mm. later on, we know they, in the Book of Alma, they have the Liahona. Mm -hmm. It's being handed on. They're not mm. using it. Because they have the interpreters. They're fighting mm. with the Lamanites. They're traveling in the wilderness. They could sure use the Liahona to guide them. They never use it, mm. right? It's been replaced. It stopped working. So what I was seeing in that narrative is that story that Justice Smith Sr. tells, that's like another bookend to the story of in, in Ether 3 about the Jaredites getting the interpreters. This is a temple narrative, right? Mm. So... Um, the, I might have missed a part in that story. He, he goes in the tabernacle. I don't know if I said this. The Lord uh, asks him, what is that in your hand? The man says he did not know, but had come to inquire. Mm. Now, you can't make this stuff up. You can't right? make this stuff up. That struck me. I've heard this kind of question, this kind of dialogue somewhere before. And I realized that the story of the brother of Jared even, and even this story, thought. they fit together. And they were, so this is now 1828 in the Lost Pages. Joseph is dictating this story that prefigures what he's going to introduce 14 years later in the novel Endowment. Hmm. And then I started to see, okay, and I won't go too much in this because it's just like the. I'm already starting to put, like, first Nephi <laughs> to me is even, you're not even talking about, but anyway, every vision, every so, vision. So Joseph Smith's first vision and the subsequent finding of his white seer stone. We have an account of that, a detailed account. It turns out they have massive temple endowment parallels. Massive. So you're just like... And so suddenly this is exploding in my head. So at the beginning of the 1820s, mm. Joseph is already talking about a vision that has elements of the Nauvoo endowment. 
Now, this was head spinning for me because, like I said, I thought he doesn't know anything about the endowment until 42. Mm. And suddenly I'm finding, no, there are clear signs of it in 29, in 28, and back around 1820, right? And with the first vision, literally day one of the restoration. From the beginning. He's a teenage kid and he's already got like much mm. of the structure of the endowment. And I thought, I thought, this oh is. Oh my gosh. That just my mind is just so blown right now. Because even anyway, I don't want to make any speculation of it, but even Moroni being the guide is very similar to other pieces too, right? Mm -hmm. Anyway. Yeah. And then the first appearance and what he tells him. Anyway. So, okay. Here's another thing. Hey, in this interview, Fayette Laffam says, and Fayette Laffam was never LDS. He never joined the church. He appears to have never read the Book of Mormon. But there are who? details. The, the guy who interviewed Justice Go, 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 go. He gives details in his account that we get confirmed from other members of the Smith family and other insiders only after Laffam publishes his account, which means he had real inside information. He really did interview Joseph Sr. and learn details. He says that Joseph Sr. told him that on the top plate of the golden plates, uh, the interpreter sat on that top plate, but on that plate also were engravings of what he described as the implements hmm. of masonry, Freemasonry. Hmm. The two main symbols of Freemasonry are the compass and the square. Yeah. On every Masonic in every Masonic lodge, on the altar of that lodge, there's a Bible. Mm -hmm. And on that Bible sits a compass and a square. Okay. So the compass and square yeah, are already on the gold plates. So before, talk about like, come on. This, is 18, when he, this is when he goes to the hill in the 1820s. Before Mosaic, Masonic anything. Long before, like 15 years before Joseph becomes a Mason or more, right? 15 years before he becomes a Mason is when he gets the plates, but he'd seen them four years earlier, right? So, so almost 20 years before he becomes a Freemason, He's talking about the compass and the square or on the plates. So there's major temple endowment stuff. So, so my, my, my book on the lost pages, I actually have a lot more about how the, even, even what we're told about the translation process of the Book of Mormon in chapter three of that book, very... talks about temple parallels. Like it, they're, they're all over, they're all over. So and so this blew my mind. One of the things I thought to myself was, okay, however brilliant Joseph Smith was, <laughs> I just don't see like a 14, 15-year-old thinking, you know, I'm going to come up with a really complex ritual, temple ritual, and someday, not now, not anytime soon, but like 20 years from now, more than 20 years from now, when I'm like pushing 40 or something, I'm gonna implement. create a ceremony where I'll implement wow. this. That that's I, I don't mm. I don't believe that. Even if just if Justice Smith had had that intention early on, he would have done it in the early days of the church. He wouldn't have waited mm. until 1842. You know. Mm. So like like I just didn't believe that a young man had this sort of foresight about what he was going to do with his life. 
And what I was finding was really powerful. I was find, I was seeing things about the first vision that actually it's it's a much more complex thing than we realized. The first vision is a healing from spiritual blindness as his eyes are touched. It's a an initiation into being a seer. His eyes are touched so that he might see. Yeah. Right. Um, it's all, all different things melded together. So I was seeing the power of it. And this started immediately making me wonder, should I be going back to the church? And so you remember, I had deliberately barred the door to coming back to the church, right? But I started seeing these things in the history, showing Joseph's sincerity and just amazing things about what's the endowment doing there in the 1820s. And then I started raising the question to myself, well, what about my own life experience? Mm, what does yeah. my experience in the church show? Is it good? Is it bear, has it burned good fruits in my life? Is it, is it of God? I thought, of course. Like that, like really, whether, whether the restoration had worked in my life had never been the question. It had. The question, my questions had been historical questions, and those questions had led me to not believe. But the fact is, my own life experience bore out the truth of it. I had just not been willing to believe my own life experience because I thought that the historical data was showing me something different. But now that I was seeing the historical data through this larger lens, I was like, okay, well, my life experience says this is real. Hmm. I... I need to be back in the church.